Good day and welcome to episode 12 of the Notes from Michael White podcast. I'm Peter Kieran. Alongside me is Josh Wagman and we're here to bring you uh, some of the highlights from uh, the Notes from Michael White newsletter from April the 10th. Good afternoon. Josh, Happy to be want, back today. Yeah, it's uh, starting to feel spring-like here in Canada, so hopefully uh, we'll actually get warmer weather soon. Yeah, now all we need is uh, a few more vaccines to show up in our region, and hopefully we can get out and enjoy it as a community. But uh, exactly. right now in Calgary, we're a little bit locked down. Uh, not quite as bad as some areas in Canada, of course, but... We, we, um, we have restrictions. We're not locked down. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a better way to put it. Um, moderate restrictions, which aren't overly burdensome, but... Uh, Definitely gives us uh, time to sit down and, and dedicate to the to the podcast. So, um, if you can still shop at IKEA, it's not a lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> true enough. True enough. <laughs> All right, Josh, you want to do you want to kick us off with uh, some of your favorites from this week? Sure. So we're going to stick pretty closely to Michael Waite's newsletter this week, um, being that it's been a busy week for me, which I'll get into towards the end of the podcast here. But um, one of the things that stood out to me was. An article Michael found on VMware Cloud on AWS, and that's more of a technical overview. So really, um, obviously, having VMware Cloud on AWS is an outstanding tool. Um, it's a great way to implement cloud services. Obviously, we've discussed this before that are familiar to an organization that have been longtime VMware customers and, and a great way to kind of explore cloud workloads. But very often what's not understood is what the underlying architecture is. What does that look like from a, a structural standpoint in AWS? And not only that, but what benefits does that provide me uh, as far as connectivity to AWS, um, integration with AWS? So what services can we integrate with, with the VMware cloud on AWS? Um, and, and, really how does that connectivity work and what does it look like from a high level? So what I took away from this article was just kind of a, an understanding um, of the deployment of VMware in that kind of structure, um, how VMware utilizes NSXT um, to kind of layer on top of the hosts, uh, like a logical overlay and, and how that connectivity kind of fleshes out throughout the, uh, the ecosystem there. So very useful. Um, and I think it really kind of sheds a light on something that's, that's maybe not as widely known as some would be comfortable with. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great article. I think you've touched on a lot of the highlights there. So yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been pleased with the, the progress that we've made wrapped around VMware Cloud and AWS from a VMware perspective and, and what our customers have really demanded that we we bring to the table and i think we're we're just uh, you know getting better and better at at providing services like that in the cloud yeah and, and what we talk about a lot and this is especially true in the last few podcasts is about both standardization right um and, and vmware cloud on aws is that enterprise-wide standardization of of cloud services that are familiar with um traditional private cloud administrators. So um, definitely nice to have that continuity and have the insight of, of what that looks like. So 
And, wow. and you know, it, it, it really comes down to, you know, we're trying to provide a consistent infrastructure, you know, from a software defined data center platform to consistent operations. And so you can have the same uh, look and feel on premises you do out in the cloud and, uh, and in multiple clouds, you know, not just on VMware cloud and AWS, but out on Azure VMware solution or uh, Google compute VMware engine, all of those sorts of things, uh, you know, are based on the same thing, which is, uh, you know, under the hood is all VMware cloud foundation. So lots of fun. Excellent. And, and you had mentioned uh, one of the topics, uh, something about uh, a community driver. Yeah, um, there's a community networking driver uh, to, uh, that is available for ESXi. And you know, if you're running NUCs or whatnot, the built-in uh, uh, NUC is, is there. So it's on the Flings. Uh, so if you look at uh, flings.vmware.com, you can get the community networking driver for ESI, ESXi, which basically gives you a, a whole bunch of uh, uh, native uh, Ethernet drivers for various uh, things that aren't necessarily on the hardware compatibility list, that, but that will still work. And one of the authors of that is uh, Songtao Zhang and, and William Lam, quite frankly, who also do the USB fling, uh, USB networker driver fling. So they're, they're kind of tied together. Um, the one thing that is different is usually the community driver gets updated first uh, for, for various things, just because it's, uh, uh, it's more Intel-based drivers and you don't have to support multiple, uh, multiple different uh, frameworks underneath the hood. Uh, but it gives you that access to that E1000 community driver and the IGC drivers under the hood. Uh, the USB fling uh, has not come out for update two yet, which I'm eagerly anticipated because I've got a few NUCs that are uh, waiting to get to update two so that I can uh, get, get those busy and doing something with those. But uh, yeah, so if you want flings.vmware.com, you can download both of those. Uh, some great updates in there uh, for v VMware ESXi 7.0 is, is the requirement for that community networking driver. And then the USB uh, driver works and everything. Uh, there's versions for 657, 7.0, 7.0 update one. So you can go to the, the Fling page and grab those. And the one thing I did notice from the, the note in the newsletter as well is if you're fortunate enough to have one of the newest NUCs, the NUC version 11, um, that community driver is actually going to fix a purple screen of death uh, issue that is is probably related to an incompatible driver with an older version. So yeah, um, definitely worth a note there. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the things that was in the note from Michael White was that that community driver version 1.1 does fix a PSOD situation with the new uh, Intel NUC 11 Pros. So it's, I think it's to the pros themselves. Okay, excellent. Well, one other thing that wasn't in the newsletter, but is on the Fling site that uh, I've been uh, uh, looking at, and I haven't played around with it yet, but uh, I put the, uh, the NSX advanced load balancer in my lab so I could start playing around with um, vSphere with Tanzu. You need a load balancer, so I thought I'd try the Avi load balancer out. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the NSX advanced load balancer came from our acquisition of Avi Networks. So it's a advanced load balancer that gives you leaps and bounds over the traditional, you know, NSX load balancer or you know any lightweight HA proxy load balancer. Lots of feature sets. So I put that in my lab, and uh, it took me a while to deploy. There's lots of little things that you have to watch uh, if you do that, but there's a um, a fling that's just come out called easy deploy for the NSX advanced load balancer. And today it's only working in our uh, VMware cloud on AWS, 
but uh, it's going to be quickly followed by vSphere integration and integration into our other uh, cloud partners as well. So other hyper hyperscalers. So good job to Nir and Evan Chan on that. He was one of the driving forces behind that. And uh, it looks fantastic. Uh, and it makes uh, installing and configuring those integrations with the Avi Load Balancer, uh, it, it makes it uh, very, very easy where, uh, it's not hard, but it's just a lot of step throughs that you have to do to make sure everything's running appropriately without uh, without that. So it, it basically walks you through it in a very easy graphical manner, and it allows you to uh, basically have a fully uh, GUI uh, experience. Excellent. So if you're like me when it comes to networking appliances and, and rather simple, um, <laughs> then uh, having... Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Having GUI uh, interfaces, like there's certain areas that I don't mind command line, but when it comes to networking appliances, I'll, I'm the first to admit I'm not uh, not the most savvy uh, technical individual there. But uh, and and that kind of brings me into the uh, the next topic that I found pretty interesting, and that is an article that uh, Michael found on on what is PowerShell and why use it, and so. What we see nowadays is obviously everything is becoming API driven. And that could be different things like RESTful API or, or really PowerShell. And what the, those are typically used for, uh, especially in a lot of modern applications, is a significant amount of automation. And the reason being is because it's very easy to create an automation workflow between unlike applications by leveraging common communication languages like PowerShell. And so there's many different tools I know in, in service desk areas or um, in kind of uh, incident management uh, where you can actually have your uh, platform react to an event in a specific way and usually leverage PowerShell or RESTful API to be able to automate that into another platform to um, help automate some remediation in one way, shape or form. Obviously, I'm with Veeam Software now, and we have a significant amount of both RESTful and PowerShell uh, integrations. And, and what I find is, especially for bulk, um, bulk processing requirements or uh, something where you might have to do uh, something that's repetitive, uh, then having a, a good solid background in PowerShell becomes extremely important. And, and I find there's, there's great editing tools built right into the Windows platform with the, uh, especially if you do like GUI with the ISC, it gives you kind of a, a nice window to create a, uh, scripts and, and kind of a development environment. But for me, I, I've started leveraging a lot in the past few years just to uh, kind of map repetitive tasks. Um, I do POCs and customer sites, and very often you can leverage PowerShell scripts instead of having to do manual tasks to, to basically make deployments more uniform. Um, where have you seen it in your past? Well, funny, funny you might say, I actually uh, wrote a lab two years ago on uh, PowerCLI, which is the VMware extension for, uh, for PowerShell. So I actually wrote, wrote a lab on how to use PowerCLI in um, 
in vSphere circumstances, but uh, as part of the hands-on lab, we use PowerShell extensively. Uh, so, you know, from our lab startup script, we actually do extensive checks to make sure everything started up correctly or certain things that might need to be started in a certain order get started from a, from a pod. So uh, I've been dealing with PowerShell for probably longer than that, way back into my administrator days, back when I was a Windows administrator. So I understand the power of it. And uh, just from a VMware perspective, we just announced PowerCLI 12.3, which uh, again, extends a lot of things into uh, vSAN file services, uh, cross-center VM cloning, uh, support for the native key provider, a new commandlet for uh, Tanzu with vSphere network, with vSphere. So if you wanted to actually uh, totally script uh, implementing a, a buildup for uh, VMware uh, vSphere with Tanzu, you can do that now straight through PowerShell. And in fact, uh, William Lamb actually has a, a full lab buildup that you can use that relies on this extensively. So uh, it's, a, it's a great thing. It's a, I call it the administrator's best friend, especially when you have a lot of repetitive tasks, you can build a quick script for it, pass parameters and away you go, so. Yeah, and, and to, to kind of illustrate the importance for Veeam as well as within version 11, the, the latest release, we actually changed from a, what was a PowerShell snap-in previously to actually a native PowerShell module now. And that's because of the importance that PowerShell is, has taken on with Veeam and the amount of uh, actual work you can do. Like you can do full scripted restores of a number of virtual machines at once. And, and um, there, there's a significant amount of, of management of your backup environment with Veeam that you can leverage PowerShell for. And I know I work quite a bit in the Microsoft realm as well. I have used the Power CLI, uh, Power CLI as well in some disaster recovery um, workflows for Veeam. Um, I do leverage PowerShell for Azure and Azure, Azure Active Directory, uh, as well as Office 365 and different areas like that. So it really touches all areas of the enterprise, cloud, um, Active Directory, anything local on your network like DHCP and DNS. The, the amount that you can do with PowerShell now is, is astronomical, really. Um, so it's really important. And I know NetApp Storage has PowerShell integration too. So, I mean. There, there's it, so many PowerShell providers that, that provide commandlets and, and additional functionality inside that, that uh, workspace that is PowerShell. And it's a, it's a tremendous uh, tool for not just administrators, but for anyone who's uh, involved in any uh, automation, just because you can do custom scripts that can do many things that are harder to do without it. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would say to any up and coming um, administrator, if, if someone's looking to get more into the kind of the, the application management side of the world is, is start focusing on, on APIs whether it be RESTful, whether it be PowerShell, just something that can provide you an, a, a way to simplify your life uh, because it will be a very useful skill as you kind of increase your technical know-how and, and try to get into the positions within an organization that, that, you're, that you're striving to be in. So uh, definitely an important skill to brush up on. Awesome. Well, you, you took one of my things there and ran with it. So that was awesome. <laughs> I was going to talk about the PowerCLI 12.3. So we killed two birds with one stone there. 
<laughs> perhaps we should talk a little bit about um, one thing that was in there in Michael's newsletter was, um, I'm scrolling down through it, the Synology DS1621XS review. And uh, really nice review of that hardware. And I think a lot of people who have uh, got home labs and, and others, it's a tremendous little box. It's got 10 gig networking. It's got uh, two M2 slots for caching, six drives. It's kind of a, you know, it's, it's that box that I think checks all the boxes for a lot of folks. And what I found, I, I followed the, what I would call prosumer, um, NAS world for, for a significant amount of time. I've always been kind of fascinated by storage of, of different types. And it's crazy to see all of the enterprise technology that what you would consider prosumer type, uh, I guess, NASs uh, from a functional standpoint and a price standpoint, especially, ha have adopted. So you've got a whole bunch of different cool technologies like. Um, the ability to create those hybrid arrays because you have the M2 slots, or you can just add SSDs to a to a, uh, a small storage box like the Synology and and set them up as a cache. So now you're not um, you're not kind of hamstrung to the performance of what would just be kind of generic NAS level drives that are not insanely expensive, but also don't necessarily have uh, the same type of seek times or, or write times that you would be uh, accustomed to in your enterprise space. But um, they've, they've done such a good job of closing the gap into the functionality. Um, obviously, when you're talking hundreds of thousands of IOPS, it's going to be a different conversation. But within especially a, a home lab environment where you do have to run 20 or 30 virtual machines, perhaps, um, where you have a significant amount of data, even if it's like, I know you do a significant amount of video editing and, and, and photographic editing, it becomes important to have some type of IO control and, and, and customization to be able to meet what your requirements are on that end as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like if you're editing high def video, um, throughput's king and and uh, you don't wanna be slowed down by your, your, your NAS box or your network on the back end. So it's definitely something that, uh, um, needs to be addressed, you know, from a storage perspective, even in a prosumer, you know, wh where if you're doing that sort of, uh, you know, capability, you, you need, you, you need that performance. Otherwise you're going to be frustrated and you won't want to do it. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. And the one thing that blows me away is the interfaces and the applications that are available on these boxes. Now, like if you look at Synology specifically, there's, uh, hundreds of applications you can actually download and deploy on the box. Like whether or not they're all secure is a different story, but. Um, well, they, they've done a really good job actually uh, kind of transitioning to a more secure model over the last uh, little while in the DSM, which is their uh, kind of their, their uh, Synology operating system. And uh, they've really gone to a containerized model for uh for how they deploy and provision applications now. So it's become a lot more secure and it's it's just easy to set up and easy to run and easy to manage, which is what I like. So, and uh, I've been able to, I've been running a Synology box probably for 10 years now without any issues, maybe eight years. It's a DS, it's a DS413 is what I have. So 2013 is the year. So yeah, eight years. So 
yeah, it's Easy. been uh, it's been a good investment, and uh, <laughs> I've definitely got my money's worth out of it. That's for sure. And what, what the one thing I I will say that I like it, and this is true probably more for a for a home user than necessarily um, anything corporate or even SMB as well, is the fact that you can leverage some of the native data protection tools on there. Um, being that I sell data protection, it's kind of strange for me to put it that way, but I also want to protect my home environment. And so if you if you need a tool, obviously you can get the Veeam free tool for 10 accounts, so that works well. But um, if you're looking at something with G Suite or, or something like that, then at least you've got something that can provide a centralized backup location or just storage for backup data like Veeam, like Windows Backup, like something like that. And so all great use cases and, and uh, I, I, I owned a Synology myself, probably right around, I'd say mine was probably a six, or actually a 17. Mine was 2017, I bought it. But uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, what, one thing to note on the, 20, the, the 1621XS that I, I do note is that it doesn't support uh, what they call Synology hybrid RAID. So you would need to make sure all your disks are the same. And I would say, 95% of us, that's the way it is, but it's just something to note that it doesn't have the hybrid RAID uh, as available, right? So if you're looking for that flexibility that the SHR offers, then, you know, another model might be a better, a better choice, right? So. Great call out there. And for me, I'm a little OCD when it comes to that stuff. So I, uh, I tend to buy everything exactly the same. I, I like <laughs> uniformity. <laughs> me, me too. And I usually buy an extra drive. So I've got a, you know, not a hot spare, but a spare that's from the same batch in my drawer, just in case something, <laughs> something dies. Right. So. <laughs> Absolutely. So another article I found is actually by a, a very good friend and colleague of mine. And then that is installing Veeam agent for Mac via Microsoft Intune. And that was written by Chris McDonald. Uh, he's a systems engineer with Veeam based out of, uh, uh, Toronto. Yep. And so obviously in version 11, Veeam uh, basically released the, the agent for Mac. And we talked a little bit about that in, in previous podcasts, but there's not really uh, at the time an, an articulate automated way to deploy it, especially if you're in an environment that has a number of Mac computers. Um, but what we're seeing is the adoption of tools like Intune, especially for endpoint management, uh, being that it's a Microsoft tool, it's been getting yeah, significant growth year over year. This is a great article that basically steps through the entire process of creating the protection group, which is a way to create policy-based data protection uh, profiles for uh, different groups of workstations or servers that require agent-based backups, typically physical or something with an RDM or something along those lines. And then you can create policy-based backups against it. So it walks through the process of setting up that protection group. And then at the same time, exporting the information we need to deploy the agent on all of our Macs. And then walking through the process of, of actually setting that up and deploying it through Intune. And so the result is it's a, it's a great, simple to follow step-by-step -step instruction of completely automating that process uh, for your Mac computers. So 
definitely recommend, especially if you've got Mac endpoints that you have to manage more than a couple uh, going in and reading this. And uh, yeah, good job, Chris. One last article that I think I'd like to mention before we wrap things up here is uh, wrapped around VMware HCX. And if you don't know what HCX is, it's our hybrid cloud extension. And basically it's a, it's a migration tool that we've come out with. And uh, there's a great article about all of the different types of migrations that HCX can do. And uh, for, for those of you who have never heard of this tool, it's basically a way that uh, VMware, uh, when they came out with it, it was basically a way that we could migrate in bulk um, on-prem to VMware Cloud and AWS. But what we've found out, it has a, a range of other uses. And so it's part of our, uh, our um, network and security uh, business unit. And really it allows cold migration. You know, so if the VM's off and we want to transfer offline, it's a cold migration and we can do hundreds to thousands of VMs and it takes care of all the, you know, A to B network, uh, you know, how do I move from this VMware network to that VMware network on the, on the other side. So we can do it with cold migrations, bulk, bulk migrations, we can do bulk with OS assisted replications, we can do HCX vMotion, which basically is exactly what it says is I'm going to actually vMotion it and it will be a live vMotion. And then I can also do a bulk migration with replication assisted vMotion. So you can use vSphere replication to do the heavy lifting across the wire. And then when you get close enough, it'll do the last, you know, the last mile, so to speak, to get you over to the to the new location. Uh, so where we've seen a lot of customers use this, you know, outside of migrating from, uh, you know, on-prem to the cloud is actually from different versions of vSphere to a new cluster. You know, so let's say you have two vCenters that are on, um, on different versions, let's say 5.5 five to 6.7, and you can't directly view motion between them, this tool can help you get from A to B very, very quickly and efficiently. So just something that uh, for, for, those, uh, for, for those people who are looking at that, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's an awesome tool that we've seen lots of uh, customer adoption with. A couple of uh, caveats wrapped around it is, you know, we don't support physical uh, raw device maps. So physical RDMs are attached, virtual media, whether they're floppies or CD-ROMs or ISOs. Uh, anything that you have with snapshots can be migrations, but the snapshots are going to be removed during the migration. So, you know, you want to do a little bit of pre-work before you start willy-nilly uh, shuffling VMs across the wire, but uh, it does a really good job of making sure that uh, all your networking settings get transferred properly to the right network segments that you specify for each one of those. So really good tool. And uh, obviously we've, you know, the, the article calls out a lot of other things in there, but uh, it's, a, it's a good level by the Next Level SDDC blog. So anything Excellent. else from you uh, before we, uh, before we uh, sign off? So, um, the one thing that doesn't seem like it would be one of our podcasts unless we kind of called out the security screw up of the week um, <laughs> or something along those lines. And this one isn't necessarily recent, but we're recently finding out about it, which kind of begs the question, why did it take this long to find out? But obviously, it's been in the news quite a bit. Over 500 million Facebook accounts uh, were compromised in 2019. And um, 
that's one of the uh, one of the links in in Michael's um, newsletter. And so obviously you can go to have I been pawned and or pwned and see if you've uh, you were amongst the the data breach. But um, basically, it is exactly what you think. Um, 533 million Facebook users around the world, a um, bunch of information compiled into a database. And then basically it's a query for a query for a fee service. So a um, little bit of a joke inside the article saying who says crime doesn't pay because these criminals are, are getting paid per, per query. So obviously there's just another example of why it's important to, to keep your data secure. Um, the fact that, even if you don't get ransomware, um, leaking that data is big money for for e-criminals. So uh, another reason to make sure that your data isn't being accessed uh, by by people who shouldn't have access to it. So just and, want to call that out. And again, proper you know password management. I know I'm I'm going to go through a whole bunch of, uh, of my passwords over the next week or two and, and make sure they're all refreshed. And I've got an, uh, a, you know, a whole bunch of uh, unique passwords for sites. Cause obviously, you know, as more and more breaches happen, you know, your passwords get compromised or are part of it. And if, if you share those amongst multiple accounts, you know, which you shouldn't, but it happens, you know, Hey, I've got my main password and I've used it here and there. And, Oh, gee, it's been 10 years since I logged into that. Well, that password was still sitting out there, right? So it's important that you you understand what you've got and, and how to protect yourself from nefarious activities. And Facebook's, I think, one of those things that you should be particularly careful about because it has a whole bunch of personal data in there that you, you share with people. And, you know, uh, when you share it and someone else that you didn't intend to get access to it now have, you know, they might know what your mother's name is. They might know where you live. They might know what your pet's name is. And those are all common secondary security questions as well. So, you know, interesting things to, to look over that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's just, it's not even surprising anymore. That's the thing. And it's just really important to, uh, um, to, like you said, password management, make sure you're locking people out as much as possible. In the event that something like this happens, you just, obviously, the, the, all you can do is secure your account. You can be responsible for your own data. Uh, that's part of the EULA. Uh, just make sure that you have, you can control what you can control and it's best to keep that part locked down. Um, the next thing, and this was, wasn't really in the newsletter, but April 20th is the big day for two reasons. Uh, we'll get into reason number one, which is Apple. Uh, the launch, launch event for April 20th has now been confirmed. Rumors have it that iPads and Macs might be on that uh, agenda. So very excited here. I'm just looking at the uh, Apple event webpage. And if you have an iPhone or a uh... Or, or an iPad, you can go in there and they actually have an, a little AR experience with the uh, the Apple event logo. So, you know, if you want to have a little fun, it's nothing big or huge, but it's just a little bit of fun that you can click on the logo and it will bring you in, into an, an AR, um, an, an AR sort of a um, little thing with all the logo kind of swirling around. So it's, it's kind of neat. Yeah, and, and the one thing to, uh, 
to note that it is Mac. There's not much mention of MacBook, so we might have to wait till later in the year. I think that's typically a fall event, is it not? Uh, MacBooks will be typically at uh, Worldwide Developer Conference, which is in June. So okay. we'll, we'll look to June to get uh, the, the MacBook updates. We'll see an iPad Pro, uh, you know, big speculation on mini LED. I think a lot of uh, customer um, pent up demand for the, the refreshed iPad will be out there. But the other thing that will be out there is um, um, will probably be as well, there's uh, air tags have been rumored as well. So we'll see what happens. So yeah. And so the second reason that uh, April 20th is a big day is it's actually going to be my last day at Veeam. So, uh, oh, earlier, sorry, I didn't have a, a sound generator. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, but um, my, my entire team is aware of it now, so I can, I can really chat about it out in the open, but um, I've decided to accept a new role and so I will be moving to um, a security company that specializes in securing uh, directory services by the name of Semperis. Um, very excited. Uh, it's, a, it's a very fast growing company and, and a lot of potential. Uh, I do wanna say uh, thank you to Veeam for everything over the last four and a half years. It's been extremely fun. A lot of learning and uh, it's been pretty cool. Like it's really nice when you can work for a company where you truly believe in what you're, what you're trying to um, get out to the market. And, and I know you feel the same way at, at VMware, but when you sell something that, uh, that you truly believe in the technology, it, it's, an, it's an easy job to have and it's a great situation to be in. Um, that being said, I, I from what I understand of some Paris, what I've learned so far, very excited. Again, I'm the type of person that I can only sell what I believe in. And, and so I'm looking forward to, to this, uh, this next step in the, the employment journey. And I think if I remember correctly, wasn't Veeam your first SE job? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd done pre-sales architecture um, for roughly about four to six years before uh, getting to Veeam, but uh, as far as vendor-based uh, systems engineering, uh, yeah, I started out as an SE with Veeam, moved into a senior SE role, and now I'm going to be in a senior solutions architect role with uh, Semperis. So, um, congratulations! We look forward to hearing more about the new role when you get into it, and uh, I'm sure uh, Veeam is sad to lose you. So, well, no, it's been fun, and and there will be shameless plugs abound within the podcast coming up. So, so no worries. <laughs> We'll know all about it. <laughs> With that, I think we'll wrap up for today. A good show today. Thanks very much, Josh, for joining uh, joining me. And uh, we wish Michael all the best. Uh, you can make it here with us today, but uh, hopefully his health is uh, staying uh, safe and staying safe with COVID. You know, with ALS, that's going to be a big challenge for them. And uh, I hope him and his wife uh, have settled into their new place. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then thanks again for, uh, for hosting. And uh, I guess we'll talk next week. Excellent. Thanks very much to all our listeners. Uh, we're now above 130, uh, 130 listens. So please, uh, if you like us, please subscribe on your favorite platform. Uh, if you need any feedback, you can reach us at, uh, on Twitter at notes from M white, or I am uh, at Canmore man and Josh, you are 
I am at Josh underscore Wegman. There you go. So if you're interested in uh, coming on the show, by all means, we'd love to have some guests. Uh, if you want to suggest some topics, I, I think uh, one that I just had in mind was, you know, so you want to be an SE. I think maybe we'll have a call wrapped around that and just uh, take you on a journey of, of what an SE does and, and uh, how you can uh, maybe make that step if that's what you want. So with that, we'll sign off for uh, today and uh, we look forward to the next uh, newsletter this weekend and we'll be back next week with another, uh, another episode. This should wrap up episode 12. Thanks very much.